I just love being, I love being in the dirty and I love being in the ugly zone because we're both going to learn so much about ourselves that are going to benefit us um, as men for the rest of our life. We're all such slaves to the result that we can't hang in long enough. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another part train. We just had a great ride. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. We got Matt Cermak with me. What's up, Ev? Great to be back. Great episode. Great episode with Sean Foley, his third ride on the train. What a day for me. Played Crail earlier, come oh back, walk through St. Andrews, and then hop on a pod with Sean Foley and Matt Cermak. Not bad. Not bad. Can't really imagine a better day, but in case you guys are new, welcome aboard. We help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again, because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. We unpack the mental game with anyone from a PJ Tour pro to a golf coach like Sean Foley to a golfer like you and me and more. But before we get to this episode with Sean and give you guys a little bit of an overview of what we talk about, we first got to ask you how your gear's looking come fall. Because fall, I think, might be my favorite time of year. Maybe it's because my birthday's in September, but there's something. It's all about the birthday. Maybe those leaves start to turn. It gets a little crisp. College football, you know, just just nice. It's a nice time to be out there. It is fun. It's fun. But, sir, you're going to make fun of me. I had a lot of hoodies. I just bought two more hoodies from Roback. I got are you are you over 20 now? Well, to be fair, my number isn't really fair because I got a lot of larges and then I realized, oh no, actually I'm a medium. So now all my larges I'd never wear. So I really only had three medium hoodies. Now I have five. I got the there's like this heathered army-ish green. Oh, I saw that that I love. Yes, I got that one. And then I got this really light gray. I realized, sir, the neutrals. I guess army green isn't a neutral, but the colors that go with anything are the ones I wear the most, the brighter colors. I, and I realize I don't wear as much. So you guys, if you haven't tried a rowback hoodie on, and now they have golf pants and now they have crew necks as well. It's so stretchy. It's so soft. You can wear it in anything. Rowback.com into the code train. This is the time of the year to get it. Use our code. I ordered a crew neck and a pair of pants for the bachelor party. We're going from 80 to high of 57 on Saturday. Oh, you need the layers. I think it's going to be here on time. I'm I'm probably going to be rocking both. So, guys, go get this stuff. It, it's awesome. It's fog off. Fog it's here. the best. Rowback. Rowback.com. Enter the code train. Thanks, as always, for hopping aboard that Rowback train. Send us messages. Show us your gear. And join the family. Rowback family is the best. Okay. This episode with Sean Foley, they're always so great because you never know what direction it's going to go in. Sean is a really deep, insightful, and thoughtful guy. And those are the types of conversations we like to have on here. And so he will not hesitate to tell you what he thinks. And we really get a ton of amazing information. If you don't get fired up after listening to this episode and feel like you have a better roadmap of how to become a better golfer, I don't know what to tell you. Something about Sean, like he just, at the end of the day, he cuts through the BS, right? He's got a lot to say, right? And you got to listen in. And there's so many good nuggets to take. And he really kind of goes in a couple different directions to really hit, hit home on a message. But it's to your point, Abby, he's so intentional. And he wants, every conversation is important to him. Every interaction is important to him. He, like the way he lives his life is, is it's admirable in that sense. Like we can all mm-hmm. learn from him. Um, but yeah, we talked a lot about a lot of good stuff. His 
Loved his, his Ryder Cup analysis. I mean, this is a guy who's been in these locker rooms. He's been inside the ropes with Europe and America. So a couple interesting takeaways from him. Much prefer his analysis over, uh, you know, listening, like just listen to Paul Azinger. Yeah. Oh boy, you know, he's, Sean's not very much a Paul Azinger fan. But also, we get into a lot of swing stuff, guys. You know, probably going to want to turn to our YouTube, listen, watch this episode. because Yeah, talk he's about doing a lot of uh, stuff with his hands and with a club and – it's helpful to see it on video. So if you haven't gone to see our YouTube, this is a great episode to check it out. Our episodes drop on video, usually the Monday following. So if our podcasts come out on Sundays, the videos should come out on, on Mondays. So you just keep I, that in mind. You know what I think I have too? It's like, I really think he's trying to simplify things in a, and we, we touched on this a little bit, you know, our world of mass media and social media and golf instruction everywhere all day in your face and, and not knowing what to think. He's just trying to help train your hands and arms better. Cause at the end of the day, why is Tiger Woods the greatest player? He's got great hands yeah. and more about that. So guys dig in. You're going to love it. What a thrill to have him on three times. Sean Foley, the Sean Foley. Yeah. So and I'm going to give you guys fantastic. a little look behind the curtain in the last, I'd say 15 minutes of this podcast. I drank an entire coconut water in this interview, which and is a lot of, not a smart play. It was a huge mistake. I thought I was super dehydrated from walking 18 holes, um, but apparently I wasn't. And the self-control it took to stay on this interview while the bathroom called took a lot of work and a lot of stamina. And I just want you to know I did that for you guys. So Tiger we'll see if you can focus. figure it. We'll yeah, see if was... you can figure it out in my voice. I don't think uh, there was any squeaks or I was moving around. You'll see Some it on facial video. Facial expressions were a little concerning. Over there, I was texting Ermac time... on the side. I said, "I might not be able to to last much longer," but I did, and that's what this show's about. He's a grinder. Is enjoying the ride <laughs> and persevering through tough stuff. Um, so, as always, guys, if this episode is helpful, do us a solid. Give us a review at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us at the Par Train, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, YouTube, to keep your game on track and. Help you enjoy the ride, regardless of what you're going through, because we've all been through our own stuff. Yeah. And so no matter where that ball goes, sir, no matter how off or elevated your expectations are versus the results you're seeing, what do they got to do? Just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, guys. Take care. Thanks, guys. For the third time, special power of three. What do they say? The, what's the significance of three? It's one of the, the best numbers out there. Third ride, Sean Foley on the train. Welcome aboard, my hey, friend. Sean. How are you? Hi, boys. I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back. We've got a hard-hitting question to start things. We're very Ooh. excited to get your thoughts on this. I wanted to know, Sean, I just, I'm in Scotland right now, and I just got done playing Crail, okay? And have you ever played Crail Golfing Society? I've I've not, but I've been to Scotland many, many times. So, okay, we might have to get into some Scotland talk at some point. But sermon, I thought you'd be a good person to ask. What do you think the universe is trying to tell me in your mind? If on the eleventh tee box at Crail Golfing Society, I hit the best drive I've hit maybe all year. Been struggling with the driver for as long as we can say. Okay, and I put it back in the head cover. And it snaps. And I've got six more rounds to play in the next 10 days in Scotland. You, but you hit a good drive, right? I hit a great drive. 
Okay. What do you think the universe is trying to tell me by this? Well, is this ride the three wood? Is this wait, use the tour no. van at the Dunhill for TaylorMade? Get it replaced? Well, when, Does this mean when, need a new driver? What do you think? When you hit the really good drive, when it left the club face, even if you walked back to your bag like all cool and nonchalant, was there any bit of of surprise in your own mind of like, oh, I just did that? Oh yeah. Yeah. So that that's starting to hedge on three wood, I think. Um now, now. <laughs> Now, the fact that you have a relationship with TaylorMade and you can go into the tour van, um, I would probably do that as well because those guys can, you know, they can, they always can make something that's going to be slightly better than what you have. But I think if you hit that drive and you went back to the bag looking like, Vic, uh, looking like Victor Hovland after he hits a fairway, but <laughs> yeah. in your mind, you're like, holy shit, I can't believe I did that. Then I'm, I'm like in three wood. Okay. Cermak thinks I should maybe explore that mini driver or the two wood. With, you know, being, being in Scotland with the conditions and thoughts on that 12 degrees, smaller head, Sean, what do you think? Oh, the tailor made baby driver. Yeah. 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 A lot of pros have liked that actually, to be honest with you, they, they, they have for sure. Remember at the end of the day, when you play golf, you get asked one question and that is what did you shoot? And so, if a three wood is going to help you provide a better answer than the driver will, then so like when a player comes to me and they, and, and we start to work together, I have to take like two looks at it, right? Like in the short term, where are the misconcepts that they have that are kind of in the way of their performance? And then two overall knowing a career is a long time. What are the couple of things that we should focus on for the rest of their career that will always benefit them, always benefit them. So for example, like, if you take vitamin C, you will never really feel how it's working, right? So you tell someone, they'll say, you know, I've been taking vitamin C for a year and I don't really feel how it helps. Well, have you been sick? Well, no, I've not been sick. Well, that's what it's for. You know, all these important supplements that we take, magnesium, potassium, all these things, we're probably not even going to recognize that we feel way better, but we are getting better. And I think that the long-term aspect, like with a guy like Ben on, Ben went to the top and he had the club face quite open and his hand path coming down was very narrow. So those two things helped Ben put a lot of spin on the ball, helped him fade it a lot, but he lost a lot of distance due to his contact. So when we got the left hand flatter or right hand more bent and got the arm away from him and turned more and had the hands travel a further distance, in two years, we went from 172 to 185 ball speed. But we literally did the same thing every day. So I think what happens with golfers normally is they, you know, there's so much stimulus out there. Like on Instagram, you can watch 100 different golf teachers in three hours. And if people are teaching golf, my, my respect is to them because that's what I do for a living as well. But you got to get to where you understand the dynamics of things and not the style. So it's so easy to go to the range every day with different ideas and trying different things, but that's not how the brain interprets improvement at all. It's really just being passionate about the mundane, sticking to the process. And we're all such slaves to the result that we can't hang in long enough 
you know, you get someone who's 350 pounds and you get them on a treadmill for a week and they'll say at the end of the week, like, I can't believe it. I only lost two pounds. And it's like, well, took you 15 years to gain 200 pounds. You're probably not going to lose 200 pounds in a year. So, but if they stick to the, if they stick to the idea of less calories, more cardio, lifting more weights, which could be 30 minutes a day of cardio and lifting weights. If they do that for two years, then people who know them now, if they don't see them for two years, they're not going to recognize who they are. And the person in the mirror who's looking at themselves is going to, they're not going to really recognize it because they see themselves every day. But when people haven't seen them, they go, Oh my God, you look unbelievable. How much weight did you lose? And so slow and steady doesn't win the hundred meter dash in the Olympics, but life is just not a sprint. It's a complete triathlon, right? Like it's, it's, it's a long time. Yeah. Sean, you mentioned passionate about the mundane and you, you put that in an Instagram post recently. I, I stole that from Peyton Manning. Mm. He's, he's a I like, one. I like to listen yeah. to goats get interviewed. Yeah. No. Same. Okay. So this is great. So, I had, I wrote that down in our notes today for you. So I did, I'm glad you've already brought it up, but I'm going to tie it into a, maybe, maybe try to tie this into a question. All right. We all want to know what happened about with the Ryder cup this weekend. It's probably been overanalyzed to death, but as somebody who's been a part of Ryder cups um, as a coach and around these guys and have just seen, seen it from a perspective that most just don't have in life. We just watch it on TV and we listen to the pundits. Is there something mundane or being passionate about the mundane that the Euros do 10 of the last 14 times over the last 30 years? Can you tie maybe their success into this idea? Or maybe not. And if you, one way or the other, just love to hear what's really yeah, going on I think, that they're doing that's pretty special. Well, I think one the pundits, man, this is the most anyone's ever got it wrong. And it, it's becoming like golf is becoming like Fox News and CNN, right? Like it's Patrick Cantlay never said that he wanted to play for money. He was not wearing a hat because he was in a boycott of anything. And so like it, what load of shit, like just it to me, as soon as people get it that wrong, like in survival and evolution, when you got it that wrong, you were extinct. And the fact that, you know, that people are guilty now till proven innocent. It's just such a shame. Like that, that was right. what you can get away that. with. It's just, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Just, it's, yeah. It's just, it's, it's just, it's incredible. But, you know, also, we also have to accept that if we're frustrated about something, most of the time that comes from our inability to accept what the current reality is. And so just because I think something should be this way and it's not, I'm not frustrated because it's the other way. I'm frustrated because it's not my way. So I, there, I don't lose sleep over this stuff, but it, it's been, you know, as a human being, I find it embarrassing. I think the, every player on both teams are on those teams because they've been passionate about the mundane, right? Like sure. who, who, who honestly wants, who, who honestly wants to sit there and, um, you know, hit five foot putts for two hours, like nobody ever, right. you know, may, maybe two or three people, but the rest of them, you know, a lot of guys who are good putters don't enjoy putting. A lot of guys who are good ball strikers don't enjoy hitting golf balls, right? So I'm sure a lot of NFL players don't love practicing in 100-degree heat. It's probably really impossible and difficult, right? So I think they're all there because they're passionate about the mundane. But I think that the 
you know, from what I've seen, because I've been on the European tour too, because those guys travel to so many different countries, they're so much closer with one another than the players are on the PGA tour. Um, not to say that, you know, in a team event, that's probably beneficial. Okay. We can look at the top hundred in the world and see the amount of Americans in there when it becomes individual, even Tiger Woods is the goat of golf. His singles record is outstanding in the Ryder cup. His team record is poor, right? He's, there's not a team guy. I, I think there's that, that they're, they're, they're much closer to each other. And it was always like that. And uh, I think what they've done also very well, is Justin Rose did a beautiful interview on it where he talked about how, you know, they had so many mentors, the Sevies and the Faldos and the Montgomery's and the McGinley's and, and how they really took them in on, and the Thomas Bjorns and, and you can go on and on and how they really took them in under their wing and how you could see Rosie really step up and almost be out there to make sure that, you know, that Bob McIntyre was okay and worried about his game after the fact. And, and in my time with Rosie is whenever he was inspired for a reason outside of himself, he always competed beautifully. Right. Like mm -hmm. that, he was very, very good at that. And I think that there's trajectories to a career and the first trajectory is very Western. It's very like, you know, dominate, kick ass, achieve, accomplish, have success, worldly rewards. And then the second trajectory, if you can catch on to it, you know, is more about giving back and service to others. And so I think somebody like a Rosie, who's really experienced about anything and everything that you can in the game, from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, he's a no-brainer for the next captain on that team. And he might be the only playing captain since Palmer did it in 63, if he keeps up. Um, the guy's just so good at golf. And so I think that you bring that they have much more camaraderie. And I think it's because they... You know, they're, they're on a tour that's not as competitive. Um, they're playing for less money and they are always constantly traveling together. That's a big part of it. Like player dining and the European tour and the PGA tour is a way different experience. So many guys sitting together, hanging out. Um, no, I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. We're talking about why they perform better in the Ryder Cup. Two, you know, they're always the underdog. Right. Even we talked about that, Ev. Yeah. Even, even when they've won 10 of the last 14 and the U U.S. hasn't won in Europe since 1993. Um, and now they've said that, you know, I think Rory said the greatest achievement isn't winning majors. It's winning a Ryder Cup in the other person's country or, or yeah. in continent, right? Um, because we can see now that, you know, the fans, look, when Steph Curry steps up at half court to – throw a long three up at golden state. He knows he's making it. The guy defending him knows he's making it. And 20,000 people in that stadium know he's making it. Right. So when you deal with like duality and Newtonian physics, it's all based on certainty. But when you start to get into the quantum world that Einstein started to tap in, it's less about certainty and it's more about possibility. And so at a subatomic level, when you have all those people, and all those thoughts and all that energy going towards Steph Curry making that three, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't. I mean, yeah. Tiger Woods used to stand around every green, like that putt that he makes at Torrey Pines. When they slow it down and they show it from like the, the earthworm view, I mean, that thing hit like 13 spike marks and went in the hole with what looked like pretty good speed and didn't lip out. Okay. 
I was hanging out of, I was at staying in the Hilton Torrey Pines and I was hanging out of my room and I could see the green. There's no doubt. I mean, even when he made it, they go right to Rocco Media and he goes, you knew he's going to make it. Right. And so at that time, he had the ability to really just to do that. But I mean, there's 25,000 people around that green and they knew he was going to make it. And obviously it comes from the competence that he's made so many putts. But I think that March Madness shows it how many times teams that have no business beating a team beat them. Because what does the 64-ranked team have to lose when they play the first-ranked team? And so when you're in a position in competition where you have nothing to lose and everything to gain, fear is almost exterminated from the process. So if you lose... Good try. They're a great team. But the other team who is favored to win, if they win, they'll say, well, they should have won. There's no joy in even winning because you should have won. And if you lose, you know, like years ago when they created the task force, right? I mean, if they learn from yeah. Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, task force do not lead to success, right? You're taking the same people who are part of the same problem and getting them all together and thinking now that they're in one room, they're going to come up with a solution that they haven't been able to have together the other times. Right. So that's ridiculous, right? I think it's part of that. And then I think this year that Luke having uh, Eduardo Molinari, who is like a brother to me, I love Eduardo having him as a, as assistant captain and doing Eddie's data driven statistic driven putting teams together, not based on just friendship, but based on skill sets. Uh, they were really super, super, super prepared. Um, that's a good, that's a really interesting point there. Yeah. No, and Eddie not is, only that, they, they practiced three whole matches exclusively with, and worked on getting out fast and getting yeah, out to a oh, hot start. And, and look, Eduardo Molinari is uh, one. He's obviously played in the Ryder cup on a winning Ryder cup team. He's won multiple times in Europe. He's had multiple top tens in majors. But Eduardo did a did two engineering degrees, did mechanical and electrical within three years. Oh, there's, um, a, there's a good tidbit right there. Yeah. I remember before I worked with Eduardo, he had to have thumb surgery. And so while he was while he was getting better, uh, he looked into the TrackMan and called TrackMan and told them that their algorithm for how they were detecting path was not correct. I mean, that's there's no <laughs> one like that, right? And yeah. so um, I, I think, you know, Eddie created, you know, Eddie was the person who picked Mark, Mark Brody's brain the most as a player on understanding strokes game. We did it together at the same time. And then because he's so bright, he just took it and put it into a program. And now he's providing players with data that he's playing against. He's got 25 clients now. I mean, Matt Fitzpatrick swears by what he's learned from Eduardo. And so I think Eduardo had a lot to do with it. And then, you know, Luke is a very kind guy, but he's he's not wasn't afraid to give his opinions on anything. So even when I looked at the captain's discussions, like it just seemed to me like Zach was trying not to say the wrong thing. And and so I think we were out captain. And that being said, you can be the greatest captain in the world. But if your players duff chips and three putts, it, it does. So right. how much does the captain have to do? I mean, honestly, we could have started the Ryder Cup again after the Euros got done with their hangover. And the Euros could have won again or got beat 18 to six. 
Like these guys are all, so we put, we can hindsight this all we want, but with the guys at this level, it could have just as easily been four zero for America starting out the first day. Yeah. But that's good you analysis know, it, though. It, it's, it's yeah. good. it really, it really, really could have been, but I just think the fact that the Europeans are almost expected not to win. And I didn't just, you know, we obviously look at that and, and, and say that it um, is, is ridiculous after all the success that they've had in the last 14 Ryder Cups. But we also have to understand that, you know, the golf media is very American. I mean, you know, of course, the Europeans had all the fans on their side, but the Americans definitely had Paul Azinger and Dan Hicks on their side. That was astounding, the coverage. For me, the, the week went away was a bit of a turnoff, just one from the coverage and the quality of it. I mean, I love when it was like, what was it, 14-8? And they're like, this is a huge putt. And I'm like, how is it a huge putt? It is over. It's <laughs> it's if, if you ask a mathematician, it was basically over after it was 4-0. All right, stay seated. The train is going to make a quick stop. But don't fret. I got something you're going to love, and then we'll get the train right back on track. You've heard me talk about Whoop, but this is not like the others, okay? I just asked the Whoop app, hey, Whoop. What happens to my health stats on days that I golf? They got this new AI feature. You wouldn't believe what it spit out to me in literally five seconds. It says, your golf activities has some interesting patterns. Here's a breakdown. Your average golf activity lasts about an hour, 43 minutes. It's registering at nine holes, and then it'll give me another register. So this is pulling nine holes. You typically hit a strain of 8.4 during these activities. You spend around... 34 minutes and 56 seconds in the restorative zone during each session. So I'm keeping that heart rate low. I'm staying relaxed, even though I'm stressed out there over a tough shot. Your average heart rate during golf is 108 beats per minute with a max of 144 beats per minute. You burn around 470 calories during each golf activity. Remember, these are averages from your 47 recorded golf activities. Love seeing that. Keep up the good work and don't forget to hydrate. What else can Whoop assist you with today? I mean, how awesome is that? I honestly can't imagine my life without my Whoop band. Here's the beauty of this. You don't even have to spend any money. All I ask you is to go to join.whoop.com slash partrain and get a free Whoop. That's it. How nice am I? Get a free Whoop, no money down, try it for a month, and I bet you, I'll make a little bet with you, you're going to absolutely love it. Okay? I can't imagine my life without it. I love getting my sleep stats my strain stats, and actually I've been walking so much in Europe, my whoop's been telling me, hey man, you need to like take some rest days, okay? My recovery hasn't been very high because every day I'm walking like 15,000 to 20,000 steps. So join.whoop.com slash partrain, get a free whoop for a month and start understanding your health and feel better about yourself after you golf because it's actually really good for our health. All right, let's get back to the show. Let me ask you this, Sean. I want to yeah. dig in on something. You said something. I picked out two big themes of what you said. One is playing for something bigger than yourself. And two is one of the greatest tools when doubt creeps in is shifting to what could be possibility, right? Instead of what might not be. And I just want to ask for the average player, because we talked about this in our Ryder Cup recap this past week, Sermon and I, we talked about how Rory, you just see a different kind of golf 
from a guy playing for a team, playing for his captains, playing for his country, playing for this bigger thing than a guy playing for his his own legacy at the Masters, trying to, right? He's even talked about how he just, he looks at leaderboards earlier, he starts slower, but he's a killer in, in this, this Ryder Cup, obviously. And so how do you think the average player, what is the concept that the average golfer can apply to play for something bigger than themselves in an everyday round? Like, how does that concept translate? Because I think that's such a valuable tool to get out of your own ego and let your true golfing self, your potential come out. And to that team golf can bring this out. We, it, it's, 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 it's clear, but golf is most of the time, not team golf. Occasionally right. it is. Yeah. You know, there's two things that we deal with in life and it happens in the first 30 seconds. Right. So we come out of the womb and we start freaking out, right? There's lights, there's people and we're, crying, screaming. And so the first thing that we feel when we come out of the womb is fear. And then they wrap us up and give us to our mom. And the second thing we feel is love. And the rest of life is just traversing between those two things. And so you could see there was like with Rory, just there's so much more love for the team and and and, and love for the, the Europeans winning the Ryder Cup you know, like, I think if you, I think if you have love for yourself and you have love for the game and remember having love for something, having gratitude for something, you can't pick and choose your gratitude, right? You got to be grateful for all of it. So if you're going through something that's really difficult right now, obviously you're not going to be grateful for it because it's really difficult. But a year from now, when you look back at it, you'll say, you know what? I leveled up because I overcame that challenge and I figured out a solution to that problem. And so I think that's where true happiness comes from. It doesn't come from having no problems. It comes from solving problems and mm -hmm. overcoming challenges. Um, that, that's definitely how self-esteem is built. And so the problem with society right now, um, and, and I'm just talking about as it relates to like what I observe having a 15 and 12 year old son is like parents are trying to protect their kids from failing. Parents are trying to, and, and if you protect someone from failing, then you're also basically ensuring they won't learn. I don't even know what my life would be like right now if when I was 15, my parents had an app to track where I was. Like doing the wrong thing and not getting caught is very applicable to intelligence, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, really, it's really important. And so I, I think as it relates to, if you love the game, then it doesn't really matter what you shoot. And I, I, so I think that that's the thing that, you know, the love for the European team, the love for the other players on that team, um, not to say that I've ever seen them look that chummy at any individual tournament. I really have not. Um, you, you know what I mean? They're, they're focused on what they're doing and they're doing that. But, you know, Luke did a good job of kind of building the script. Luke's been very present. He's been out. He's been playing in Europe. He's been doing this. He's been doing that. And then, you know, I think, People have asked me, like, if I was a captain, who would I have taken on the American side? And I definitely would have taken, like, I've, I have a pick that might sound crazy to people, but it shouldn't. 
but I'm definitely taking Lucas Glover and I'm definitely taking Steve Stricker. Steve Stricker is on my Ryder Cup team. How is Steve Stricker not on the Ryder Cup team? As a player or as an assistant captain? As, as a player. Who's, you think he, who's, who's playing better golf than Steve Stricker? Well, would you, would, would you call – well, it's Especially like a, with the way the Europeans made the course where it didn't – it wasn't bomber's paradise. Right, because if it's not too long. I mean, yeah. No, I love it. But I, guy, was, I, mean, I was shocked, Sean, that – but the, no Poulter, no Sergio, too. The tournament was going the way it was. I was shocked, and we, we're not going to spend the whole time on the Ryder Cup. We can ship no. something else. But I was shocked that nobody made adjustments. And maybe that's just because I'm an amateur golfer and they're pros, and maybe they think they can hit a fairway every time they go up. But to me, if you miss enough fairways and you're having to hit out sideways and the Europeans are hitting fairways and they're dominating the matches – I would think there'd be an adjustment made of hitting more fairway medals, but maybe the course was too long for them to make that adjustment. Yeah. I, you know what? I, I don't think that those guys expect that they're going to miss the fairway. I just think that, you know, I mean, if, if you look at the team, young Bob McIntyre's been playing really good lately. Ludy Alberg is a problem for the golf world. That boy is incredibly good. Victor Hovland is the best player in the world by a mile right now. So John Rahm is always going to be solid. And, you know, John Rahm and Scheffler to me are the, you know, the kind of the best players in the world right now. And John Rahm played like it. And Scotty obviously didn't have a, a, a great Ryder Cup. But you can't really judge over one to over five rounds, right? Like careers are built on years and years and years of, of thousands and tens of thousands of rounds. But yeah, I, remember in Darwin's theory of evolution, adaptation is the key to survival, right? So, adapting to something rather than going, I can't believe this is happening right now. Right. Right. Like yeah. there's no, there's no Navy SEAL who's ever looked at his Lieutenant and said, can you believe they're shooting at us? Like, no, that's, that's what it is. So I think if, if you have a real deep understanding of what the game is, then you'll probably realize that most of the time you're frustrated when you're playing is just because you haven't seen it clearly enough yet. Right. Like golf is golf is hard. Um, and when you get into that, you know, when you get into that in America or in Europe, when you have the fans on your side, there's so much more noise. There's so many different things happening. The brain is detecting so many more threats. And, you know, guy yells in your backswing twice. It's going to be really hard for your subconscious to pull the trigger the next time thinking that you're not going to get yelled at. So it's just a, a fantastic environment to watch golf and, and uh, whether it's in America or uh, Europe, it's always just a fantastic event. Let me let me ask you this, Sean. This is a bit of a left field question, but I've realized in three times of having you on the show, we've never really talked about this. How much golf do you get to play? And what does golf represent to you as a player? Mm, like why, would, if you do still play, why do you play? Yeah, I don't really play that much anymore. And it's not for, it's not because I don't enjoy playing. It's just I feel that between, you know, having seven tour players, uh, writing a book, doing a lot of corporate speaking, being present as a father and a husband, just the amount of time that it takes to play golf, I don't really have that right now. And so I feel if I do, it's going to throw out the kind of like, I don't think it's about having balance because I, I don't really believe that. I think it's about being able to deal with the chaos of the imbalance as well as being present wherever you're at. So I like that. What, why I like playing golf 
I just enjoy the challenge. I love the fact that it's different every day. I don't think I can learn much more about myself. I played a, a lot of golf to this point, but you know, it's, you watch a man play 18 holes or a woman and you can, you know, you can probably get a, at least 72 holes. You probably pr have a pretty good understanding of how they live life, how they deal with things that are out of their control, how they utilize momentum, all these di different aspects. So I just, I love the game that it's different every day. I love that it's challenging. Of course, my job is to help people make it easier, but also my job is to get people to be really excited about accepting the pure difficulty and the demand of the game. Yeah. You know? Hmm. And then obviously I, you know, I love being outside. I love sunlight and, you know, I've been to some of the most beautiful places in the, in, in the world where there's these gorgeous golf courses. And, you know, for me, it's, uh, feels a lot better than walking around, uh, 150 story buildings. Right. We, we had a question from a fan that I wanted to ask, and it's, it, it, it kind of represents your journey a little bit in terms of you were a you know, college player. And you started your teaching career, probably teaching all levels of players. Sure. You know, now you've gotten to this point in your career where you're you're teaching mostly the best players in the world. So he was uh, our friend Jay, Jay McBride, uh, former college teammate, and he was a, he was an assistant teaching pro. He asked, "I'd be curious to ask Sean what the level of detail that goes into teaching a scratch golfer who competes in amateur events versus a tour pro. How specific, non-specific is the difference between the two? from a teacher standpoint. I don't think, I, I don't think there's any difference with a 20 handicap. I think obviously it's different on tour that we have, we're provided with all kinds of data. Yeah. So, you know, the data is not everything, but it's helpful. A lot of times people don't see themselves very well. So data helps. Like I've had guys think they suck at something and they're in the top five on tour. And I've had guys who think they're great at something and they're 150th on tour. So the data gives us, you know, kind of an idea of exactly not who we think we are, but who we are. Um, but yeah, I don't approach, I don't approach it any different. You know, to me, golf is as it relates to the golf swing, wrist angles cannot be more important. And, you know, it's a game that we play with our hands and our arms because we're holding on to the golf club. So I think that if you watched me give a lesson to a tour player and you had a drone and you got to tape the whole thing and then saw me with a 20 handicap, you wouldn't notice any difference in intensity, focus, process, and just trying to educate them. Obviously they've come to see me because they're doing something wrong. They've been trying to fix it. They haven't come up with a solution. And so my goal is to one, try to identify where their concept is not right. So it, it doesn't matter if you have a Ferrari, if you put diesel in it, it will not start. It doesn't matter. Right. And so the person with the Ferrari is like, it's not starting though. And I say, well, it's got the wrong gas. Yeah, but it's a Ferrari. I spent $300,000 on it. It doesn't matter. It won't, you won't have combustion with diesel. I felt so, that way about my Velocor shaft. They just snapped. Same thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The shaft is fantastic. Um, but it's also the shaft is connected to the hands that are connected to a brain that's connected to a subconscious that uh, is basically designed to remember all the bad things we've done so we don't do it again. So that's the problem with the brain is the brain is completely concerned with survival and not really like living. It's a difference, yeah. right? So 
it, I don't think there's any difference between the, the scratch. And now I think what you have to do for everyone is understand that that scratch player at the club probably as the tour player does has a family, but has another job. The tour player's job is to play golf. So, livelihood versus not livelihood. Yeah. So time, <laughs> time is the key. So someone comes to me and they give me, look, I'm going to be able to do this for two hours a week. Then I'm going to have to look at, okay, so are we going to work on mechanics or are we going to work on skill sets? So you're, guy pr you're prioritizing. The, yeah. You got to prioritize, right? So asking somebody who wants to work on their swing, you know, are you good at chipping and pitching and bunker play? No, I'm not good at that. All right. Well, you, you swing it pretty good. Uh, not as good as Adam Scott, but you can get a lot better from 30 yards in, which is going to provide you the opportunity to tell your friends that you shot 72 and not 78. So it's, it's, I'm always thinking like the over overarching thing with me is when we get done golfing, they're going to ask us what we shot. So with this person in front of me, what do I need to do with them so that they can tell people they shot lower scores? And that's, that's where I'm at with it. Whereas at one point, you know, years and years ago, it was literally about having a perfect swing. But I mean, how many times I gave a lesson to someone and they swing it pretty good. I give them a couple things to do. And then at the end of the lesson, they go, that was really helpful, but I was struggling with my chipping. That's why I came to see you. And I'm like, Ugh. so that, like, so, what you, so that, yeah, that's, that's how you've evolved. That, that, that That's a fascinating. What do you basically, you come to see me. All right. What are you struggling with? And what would you like to learn? So it's trying to take, my, you know, knowing that we're very arrogant in what we prefer and what we prefer, we think is what everyone else should prefer. And so knowing that I have a preference, knowing that I enjoy a part of my job more than other parts, it's going to be most likely I'm going to end up doing what I prefer and what I enjoy. But that person is not coming to see me for that. They're coming to see me to get uh, tutelage on what they need to do to improve. So it's is really about them has got nothing to do with, with me and then me taking, you know, 30 years of experience doing it. It's become really very, very simple uh, in my head. It's just the process of getting better is not hard. It just takes a lot of discipline and, and discipline is, you know, we're in a generation of people now who can order anything and get it within 24 hours. And we expect them to come on the range as they've got into this mentality of, I can get it tomorrow, but there's there's no shortcuts in this. All right, the train's going to make another stop. Stay seated. We'll get you right back on track. But I got a little update on merchandise drops and things that you guys are wanting to know. I spent a lot of time in Scotland really thinking about, all right, what do we want this next wave of hats to be? A lot of people have been asking for our Enjoy the Ride hats to be restocked. We've actually never done a restock before, but because – the demand for them has been so high, and because we sold out so quickly, we're going to do our first ever restock, but I'm going to throw in some fun bonuses and some hats that I think you guys are going to absolutely love. So all you got to do is go to thepartrain.com, sign up for our email newsletter. It's totally free. I send it out every Monday, just one thought, quote, or thing we're pondering to help your mental game and help you stay on track on and off the course in between podcasts. And... I'm going to launch our merchandise to our email subscribers first. And it might, based on the amount of subscribers we're getting, it might sell out before I get it to social media. So if you listen to the podcast, you follow us on Instagram across all of our channels, but you're not on our email list, after we lost our Instagram, I realized, holy shit, 
I can't lose the ability to have that back and forth with you guys, hear your great stories, and give you updates on all the things we're working on. So the email list is the best place to get direct access and first access to all the merchandise drops and things that we're doing. So thepartrain.com and put your email in there, totally free, and we'll see you on board. All right, let's get back to the show. Let me build on the scratch golfer question because this is timely. We were on a podcast recently, and Serm, I didn't know this, but Serm said, Serm's got three brothers, okay? All four of them played D1 college, and three out of the four have qualified for and played in U.S. Mid-Ams. There's only one brother that hasn't, and he's on this podcast right here. And I didn't know that, and he well, said it's it. USGA events, Mid-Am, U.S. Junior, USAM. Yeah, yeah. But yes, you got the point correct. And I said, and I texted him two nights ago. Maybe it was even last night, sir. And I was like, hey, what if we made a commitment for you to try and qualify for the mid-am next year? I fly to Chicago. I'm your caddy. We document it. We do it together. And he hasn't played in a in an individual competitive tournament in what, 13 years? Right, since college. Since college golf. So I'm, we're going to ask you, we thought this would be fun, Sean. What would you say to, to Serm, a scratch player, former D1 player, hasn't played in a competitive event in 13 years, individual. Um, how would you, what is the most important milestones he needs to hit next year to get him ready for a competitive tournament? And this could apply to anyone. This could apply to a 10 handicap that's finally getting comfortable to play in their club championship. This could be a 20 handicap being comfortable playing in a scramble. How do we prepare getting ready for tournament competitive play? I mean, the thing is, is like two things. Uh, one, by labeling it like that, you're adding value to it. So as you add value to it, your nervous system will respond to that added value, right? So regardless yep. of and, and look, if he, had, he hadn't played competitive golf in 13 years, if every single year he went to the mid-am qualifier, he probably would have already been in one mid-am, right? Yeah, but yeah. He, probably yeah, he's a good point. play well one day, yeah, right. Yep, 100%, because he's a good player. So Yeah, it's, fair point. You know, but the problem is, obviously, handicaps come from nine of your best or eight of your best 20 scores. So you, you could shoot in the 60s, you know, seven times, and you could shoot in the 80s four times, but those are going to get kicked out, right? So, you know, handicaps also come most of the time from people playing their home course all the time. And I think that that's what separates tour players so much. They're playing in different continents, different temperatures, different golf courses, and they kind of always shoot the same scores, right? So that, that I think that is a, that shows you that their skill set's very high. So yeah. saying like, this is going to be it, you know, the mid-AM, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for a year to qualify to it. I mean, it's nice to have some sense of purpose, or, or reason behind the work, but I, I just think that as it comes down to it, you know, the, the Navy SEALs have a saying that they trust their training. And so what, what does that mean? And I've had the opportunity to, to, to work with a couple of SEALs, but listen to them and ask them, like, basically be you and CERM with them. And, you know, they train the worst case scenario, like over 60% of the time. We don't do that. So mm. from amateur golfers to tour players, no one is really that good out of a fairway bunker. So 
why would you not practice hitting a lot of balls out of fairway bunker? So that, that would be important, right? It's a really good point because even as still, I mean, a good player, I don't practice fairway bunker. I don't really practice that much to begin with. And I mean, there's times when I get that fairway bunker and I'm like, well, we better think about this one. Like, 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 you know, it's a, that's an eye opener, right? Like, but the thing is, the thing though for that is like, imagine if every time you went to hit irons, all you did was practice out of a fairway bunker, you would one get better out of a fairway bunker. And because the environment is so much more challenging, you also get better in the fairway way better. I mean, if you practice in a fairway bunker, that's all you did was practice in a fairway bunker. And then you got a good line in the fairway. It would look like it was on the, the it would look like it's on the tee at top golf. So yeah, I'm flying to Chicago, sir. And we're going straight to the fairway <laughs> bunker and we're hitting a bucket out of there. Yeah. I mean, a the, jumbo the, bucket. <laughs> the, 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 the fairway bunker, you know, working towards like in your swing, people are obviously going to miss both ways, but when someone has a two-way miss, they set up to draw it and they fade it. When they set up to fade it, they hook it. So that's not a good two-way miss. But everyone's going to have a slight two-way miss. But, you know, having a consistent shape you're looking for, uh, I think that's imperative as well. So, you know, you look at someone like Zach Johnson or Kenny Perry, they're both probably going to be in the Hall of Fame and they hit a pretty big slinging draw. Yep. So as it related to them going to right pins, they just never really did. So... The fact is, is going at those pins would have created more bogeys than birdies. And by going to the middle of the green with their draw, they just made a hell of a lot more par. So over 10 years, that probably turned into 12 or $13 million. Just not, I asked Kenny Perry one time, what do you do when you need to fade it to a right pin? And Kenny goes, don't know, never tried. It's like what but DJ you know, said about the driver. Do you, know many, yeah. do you know how many guys have derailed their whole career because they tried to do something that they couldn't do when, if you look at the data, it wasn't really important that they knew how to look as soon as you're on a par four and your second shot says 200. So for our amateurs listening, that might be 160 yards, right? Your only business is to hit it in the middle of the green. Like even at a hundred yards on tour, the average proximity of the hole is 16 or 17 feet. So if the pin is on the left edge of the green, and it's only three on and three over a bunker going at it is not really responsible knowing that the best in the world average 18 feet. So I just think when I'm, when I'm with my friends who are 10 or 12 handicaps and they let me decide for them what, what I want them to do off the tee and into the green, none of the advice is mechanics is none of it swing wise. Right. But knowing that, at 160 yards from the fairway, a world-class player averages 30 feet, but from the same distance in a fairway bunker, they average 80 feet. I'm never going to let my friends hit a club that's ever going to get to a fairway bunker. I'm never going to let them lay up to 50 or 60 yards because no one's good at that shot. And I so, mean, I, yeah, I love what you're saying, Sean, because like for the example that Evan's giving, right? If I were to play a couple tournaments next year and get back into it, you got to think about what are the hard shots in golf that we deal with fairway bunkers, you know, maybe, you know, behind the green to an elevate, you know, elevated pin, you know, like, okay. So those shots are tough as it is now take those shots in a tournament. They're really tough. So spending time in those areas more that, that you don't typically do and kind of look, simulate, simulate that to get ready. Look, the, the thing is, is like when the seals went to Islamabad to get bin Laden, that helicopter went down. You remember that, right? Yeah. So 
And so I asked them, they weren't the guys that I had met weren't there, but they, but they knew the guys who were there. And they said, Sean, we, they would have done training exercises of what they would need to do if both of them went down and they would have done it hundreds of times. I mean, think about that. Like that, what, so what, so imagine that every day you Great go and example. practice, remember every day that you go and practice, you always practice the worst case scenario rather than, cause we don't really realize how much control the ego has over our daily activities, right? Who, you know, when Hunter Mahan used to be on the range hitting drivers, everyone would come up and be like, dude, that's so good, man. Like, wow. Who doesn't want to hear that? Who doesn't like to hear that? Yeah. Right? Watching Brant Snedeker putt, it looks like he's Steph Curry shooting three-pointers. Who doesn't <laughs> want to be where they're really good? And I'm and look, the idea that you've got to really challenge that old idea of like, you know, practice your weaknesses, you want to strengthen your strengths as well. So with with within what you want to do, like you you've played with him many times what is his strengths right so yeah. get, getting ready for the mid-am like what would you say your strengths are already i mean for me i mean i would say my strengths have always been you know short game short game you know um he's a grinder too I, i'm pretty good at you know i staying within myself identifying risk you know um where i you know where i struggle sometimes a little erratic off the tee um sometimes leaning on hitting it too low with my irons. Um, and I, you know, and sometimes just can't quite control the distance. Um, so yeah, that, that, that maybe that, like so. indecision too. Like maybe trying like get in between hitting a shot versus well, getting clear great, on your plan. That's the great right? battle. But I think sometimes if I'm indecision, I'll go always to try to, you know, hit more of a knockdown shot yeah. when, it's just not what it calls for, but I'm thinking, you know, it's that classic, uh, classic, you know, decision in your head. Well, I'm just trying to mi minimize the damage. With well, the, with, I, but I think though, choice. I have a, I have a saying with that is, um, Tiger would always call it the back foot special. So like when he, when he knew he didn't have it, right. he could put that ball back in his stance, hit down on it and at least get it on the green. Right. right. I mean, right. Tiger's, so Sometimes I feel like Tiger. I'm too, I'm always in that mode. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tiger's not the, Tiger's not the goat because of all the 62s he shot. It was all the 74s he turned into 71. It was all the 71s he turned into 69. Right. Um, yeah. Cause even he'll tell you that golf really hard. So when you are practicing, knowing that like one of the things I say to my players is when it comes down to course management, always do what you know you can do. Right. Mm -hmm don't necessarily do what you're working on and never do what you can't do. And so when you're standing there at 150 and you just got to get it on the green and you go for that little knockdown shot, um, that that's fine, but you're going to get to a certain point where that club doesn't have enough loft where that shot goes off very well. Right. So you just can't, you can't, how many courses can you hit a low forearm into where you're going to be decent? So if I was going to say right now, I would put a focus on one getting professionally fit for a driver, like a, a really good fitting pro. Okay. Um, I can almost guarantee you that very few amateurs are using the right driver. Okay. Um, Trotty told me that when I did a ball fitting with Trotty in San Diego, and that was one of the first things he said to me, he saw my high spinny right shot and he goes, dude, you're hitting a 10 and a half 
Sim 2 Max. This is arguably TaylorMade's biggest, spinniest driver. And you should be hitting something, creating as least amount of spin as possible. Yeah. And, so, it should be, that, and it should be turned lower, not higher. But that, So this is it, though, right? Well, obviously, if you have more loft, you're going to have more spin, right? So yeah. that that's the whole thing. You know, Trotty is like legit at his job. So I'm not saying you go into, I'm not saying you go into PGA Superstore and get that fitting. Trotty's like been there, done it, made a billion mistakes. He, he, he at this point, he might not know exactly what's right, but he totally know what's, he totally knows what's wrong. And that, yeah. that's a very important place to play life from, right? Because sure. what, what's right for you, Evan, will come through exploration and experimentation. But if we can avoid what's what's wrong with you, so I would one, I would do that, and then two, when I had time to go practice, I know I can hit the low knockdown shot. So getting used to being able to hit it up in the air, just hitting it high, and yeah. then because your because your short game is one of your strengths on and around the green, you know, make sure you make that fifty percent of your practice because based on the other things, you can't lose that and compete. So to me, you know, making it to where you know, when you're on the range, it's not giving it a perfect lie all the time. That's the problem with being on the range is we're normally going to have a decent lie. And then we get on the course and, you know, it's sitting, it could be in the fairway, but still sitting down a little bit. And we try to approach the shot like we do when it's in a good lie. And we're kind of behind the eight ball before we start. Right. So knowing, knowing what the shot is asking of you is, is, is really, really important. Um, and then maybe, off the tee, creating kind of a go-to tee shot that when it doesn't feel good, you know, Tiger used to aim left and use the whole fairway. He called it that crop duster, right? Slider cut. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, that he didn't want to do that because he knew it wasn't going to go as far. It, but, but, you know, he knew he didn't have it. And the reason that he was a goat was that he didn't continue to keep hitting shots thinking he had it. He just knew he didn't. And he knew that he just had to survive that day. Um, and that's probably, you know, once again, adaptation is about survival of the fittest. And I think that we can say that he's the ultimate apex who ever played the game. You know what this reminds me of? Totally. This is, a, I just heard a quote from Brett McCabe, um, sports psychologist, obviously, for John Rahm and a few of the uh, Ryder Cup guys, actually. And he said... He was asked, how do you help guys deal with like the biggest pressure moments? And he said, if you can get locked into the easiest thing that you can do in the most aggressive way that you can do it, that's a great formula, right? Like what comes easiest to me and I can do it the most aggressive, which is so in line with what we've heard so many times in the show, which is swing aggressive to conservative targets. But that is specifically with what you do, which I think is kind of what you're saying. Sean, it's like, yeah. find something that you know you can do and yeah, that, do it that, hard. But that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, that like if we, if we look at Dustin Johnson from when he first came on tour till now, it took him a decade to learn to hit the proper cut. So when, when he came out, he hit that big push draw. That makes me and feel so, better actually for, because oh, I just started oh. trying to hit a cut and it hasn't been easy. So that makes me feel better, Sean. But I mean, it, the thing is for him though, it was because he hits it so far, it was potentially a better, better idea for him. Right. Um, but there's so many players who see that they see John Rom, 
and they see Scotty Scheffler and they're all fading the ball. But I mean, if you ask me, you know, looking at those guys, that ball starts right of where they're aimed anyways. They're still coming from the inside. It's just that the face is slightly more open than the path is to the right. They're not, not really cutting across it, right? Like I hate the word cut. Cut's a terrible word. Like, like when someone wants to hit the ball far, they go, oh, I'm going to swing harder. Hard is not a word that is, equi- that, that is assimilated with speed. Fast. I'm going to swing fast. Swinging hard, like it's a hard day, was a hard climb. Hard's not the right word at, at all. And I don't like the word cut. When I, if, you, if you say to anyone who doesn't play golf, um, cut it, they're going to go and look for scissors or a knife. So that's like a cut, like a violent, like you're cutting it. So to me, I like the idea of the ball, like I'm hitting a shot that's going to fall right or fall left that may fade. Bleed off the tree. Like, yeah. Or or may draw. So language is language is really massive, right? Like language is is really, really important because the the brain often is it is 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 getting its reference from the noun and describing adjective. So, you know, that, that how it's not what you say. It, it, it's kind of how you say it, but it's also what you say. So the amount of times I've seen guys pull a shot because they were trying to hit it too hard. Um, whereas a lot of times when they get to like really high ball speeds on the course, they weren't really trying to do that. They were just in a good place. And they felt good about what they were doing. And their brain said the the governor, the fear is gone. So just go ahead and, you know, we're, we're pretty, human beings are pretty amazing. You know, we, we're, we're much more amazing than we give ourselves credit for. So I think that's how I would look at it. Like, okay, driving the ball better would be a massive advantage. So one, let's look at what you're using first, right? Two, your short game is strong. So make sure you practice that 50% of the time. And three, if you want to swing it better uh, and overall hit it better, practicing for 30 minutes a day in a fairway bunker, as frustrating as it will be, is really important. And frustration is frustration is 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 definitely um, it's okay when you're learning something to be frustrated. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, the frustration should be momentary. It shouldn't last on the car ride home and then as you sit on the couch that night. But there's nothing wrong with. I'm not patient with myself, but I'm patient with everyone around me is because it's okay to be impatient. I demand a lot of myself and I know what I'm capable of. So there's no, there's no better feeling than hitting a good fairway bunker shot. I mean, I think it could be the best feeling. I know you like a three wood off a deck of, you know, into a par five, but (laughs) fairway bunker shot is so difficult, you know, to repeat. I think what you're saying, Sean, that's where you really train yourself. That, I mean, you know, that's, that, that's, that's kind of it. You know, when they go through, when they go through, through Sears school and they drop these guys off in the middle of nowhere and give them a process of, they need to be at a certain point at a certain time. Um, they do that knowing that is potentially going to happen. And so you need to know what to do. So no one ever practices in the fairway bunker is because they don't potentially think they're going to hit it in a fairway bunker. Like, so Really, you know, to me, you know, if you wanted to climb Mount Everest, you're never going to know what it's like to get there. But you could start with making sure that you work on having strong legs. You can make sure that 
you know, you're climbing things and then you can even get onto a stair climber that's in a room that they can make the elevation to 15,000 feet. So your, your brain starts to get used to how to maximize oxygen, red blood cells, white blood cells. And then when you get there, you can hire a great Sherpa who's got experience and then make sure you have the best gear. After that, yeah. all you can, after that, the only way to climb it is to put one foot in front of the other. You have no control of the weather. You have no control of the snow conditions. After you've done everything you can do, all you can do is put one foot, one foot in front of the other. And yeah. realize that on the climb up that mountain, the place where you're going to learn the least amount about yourself is the summit, which is the destination and the goal the whole time. Yeah. Well, a lot of times I feel like our golf swings are these Mount Everests that we're trying to climb. And so many times we do it, we don't understand the terrain. We don't understand the gear. We don't understand anything we're trying to do. And we're just, we keep trying to go up, but we keep slipping back down. So I know we're almost at time. I want to ask you about the swing for a second, because you sent us the pro sender, which we love. We're seeing it all over the driving range on the PJ tour. And something really interesting happened recently, Sean, where I got a lesson from Rick Sessinghouse, who's been on the show many times. He's a lovely um, guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's great. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Rick fan. He's he's great. And we're talking about how I've always struggled. I always roll it inside, and the face is always open my entire golfing life, right? So many amateurs struggle with this. And I was talking to him about, I don't understand like Cermak has a great hinge. I don't understand how he gets it up. And then he told me, he goes, well, this, let me see if you can see this. This is a lot different than this. Mm -hmm. And I have a ton more ability to flex my wrist laterally, extend it, yeah. extend it than vertically. Or what, what do you call this? That's called radial. Okay. And so, he told me, he's like, you know, what's interesting is you get here, but you do this. That club's going in. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, because I know the pro sender is about setting that angle, right? And being mm -hmm. able to feel it and train it. Mm -hmm. So that kind of blew my mind because everything I've seen with you guys, that's a very positive thing to have. And well, the sooner the, you said it, the, but maybe I'm doing it too early. So maybe help clarify that a little bit, because this is something that I think so many golfers, if we can just square it up and understand what that feels like a little bit more, it's going to give us a better chance. Well, the thing is, is that that ex ex extension when, when we, when David and I, uh, when we got the, uh, the pro sender and, we built it at 51 degrees because that is literally the average on tour. So it's not about it. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of radial. Okay. Um, yeah. There's going to be some. Okay. But to me, the issue is that I'm not trying to get, I'm not trying to get it on there right away. Okay. I'm yeah. at this at this point now, someone like Matt Fitzpatrick with his grip, he goes in, that's fine because his hands are already turned all the way this way. Okay. Someone like Ben on Ben, Ben on's hands are turned the opposite way. So I like when Michael Kim takes it back like this, but I like when Ben takes it back like this, because that suits his grip. Mm. Okay. So the, the grip is, 
that that's and guys like Terry Rose and Mike Adams have some really cool stuff on that too. But I I don't want it on until the backswing is getting completed because what mm. happens is if you get it on too soon, now what happens is the shoulder and the position that it's in, you're going to run out of room in the backswing. Yeah. Okay. Cause this is going to get retracted. This elbow is going to get in. Whereas if I do it, the duration of the backswing now, as it's starting to get on there at the end, now it's coming from here. So I would, I, I never want to be very rarely with anybody, the club inside the hands here, but I don't necessarily have to hinge it this way either. This, this is to me, this is good. Like on a lob shot or a bunker shot, but you know, if you listen to, you know, Butch or myself or um, a lot of players, their takeaway is quite wide. No, no one's really picking it up like that. Okay. It's, and we're getting into it a younger generation of tour players who have way less wrist set than the previous one did. Cause remember mm. the more I set my wrists on the way back, the more I have to unset them on the way down. And so, I mean, look at a guy like Cameron Young, Steve Stricker. So we need to understand this. We were all taught to hinge to create lag, but lag is not really a proponent of speed. How fast I get rid of lag is, is speed. So if mm. I have all this lag have, and I hold it, I'm not going to even have any speed. So it's about the ability to get a little radial, get some extension, and then be able to create speed. So like one of the, one of the words that's completely out of golf instruction now is release. So we, we talk about how stable Victor Hovland's club face is. His club face is still closing at under over 200,000. Um, its rate of rotation is so, I mean, look, his ball starts left. It can't be stable. Like even Tiger, when he putted, his club face would open seven to eight degrees and close another however many. So the, I hate the word stable because this club is just spinning on its axis when we're hitting golf balls. And so ideally – if I get it in too much, the face might be okay, but this range of motion is going to cause that. So when you're using it next time, when you take it back to here and you're just really trying to get that club to be in front of you and wide, I, it wouldn't be on right now. Right. So it's that it would be on in transition. And all we're trying to do is get people to where the face is more square that allows them in two one hundred of a second to keep squaring it. Right. Got it. So, so when we say that these players have stable club faces and, and, you know, they say all I feel is my body turning this way and turning that way, their, their hands have been educated since they were like 13 years old. So, you know, they were naturally able to do that. But if you look at, you know, quarterback throwing, there isn't much of this in quarterback throwing. It's more there. And, but it would go back they go back this way and then get there. So that's us not being on it and then being on it. And mm. if you look at pitchers, it's the same exact thing. Um, Woodsy sent it to the hitting coach at the Dodgers, and they've been using it with their batters. That's awesome. So, this is, so yeah, this position to me is way more imperative than, than that position. Uh, I would say this is kind of the 70s and the 80s of 
hinging the club L to L, but the face is just so open. Remember, for 35 years, the index of handicaps have not really changed at all, right? Right, right. I think it's been pretty con. So I think if you're looking at like instruction, and the funny thing is how things go, right? Is when I first moved to Florida, everyone who came to me had the face pretty open, left wrist cupped, shaft parallel, and they weren't turning their lower body very much. And now the mini tour players who come to see me who are struggling, their wrist is too bowed, their right leg is too straight, and they're trying to get like really open. And right. so it's just it's just trends. But remember, there's a difference between style and dynamics. And I talk about this a lot is if I had a, a shop where I made jeans, right? The best jeans in the world. Then the two of you, when you come to see me, the style of your jeans are going to end up being different because you're both different. But the dynamic is the denim is identical. So style is style is somebody likes tequila, somebody likes beer. The dynamic is they like fermented sugar. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. trying to get to the trying to get to the 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 nuts and bolts. And the reason the pro center has helped so many people is because when we looked at everything different with amateur golfer and a pro golfer and excluding time and an opportunity like that, that we're not talking about that just off of 3d is that pro golfers are between 42 and 63, but average 51 amateur golfers are between 10. So they might do all kinds of that Ev, but they're between 10 and 30. And then, Amateur golfers have way more bend in their right arm than pro golfers do. So if I bend my wrist and hinge it that way, my elbow is going to bend more. So at impact create force, my arms have to be straightening. So in two one hundredths of a second, if I'm over bent with the face open, then the ensuing effect of that backswing position, too much bend in my arm and too much hinge in my wrist with the face open, as soon as I start down, because remember force precedes motion, of course I'm going to be here every time. Whereas if I am in extension with less wrist hinge and my right arm is wider and I go to do the same thing, that's exactly where it goes. So if we can get people, I, I really believe without a doubt that golf is a backswing game. And I, and it's not really that I believe it. I think it's almost a fact is because the downswing is two to three one hundredths of a second. So I really can't do a lot once I start down. Yeah, yeah maybe you know, that's, that's that's the takeaway, right, Zerm? It's like, let's stop trying to feel shallowing and that's and where do, I was going next. Yeah, yeah. Like you can have your trigger and your feel of right elbow to your ribs. That can be a good like trigger for you. But for yeah. most players who didn't play D1 college. I think what Sean's saying is use this pro center to get to a point at the well, top. But the trigger of the elbow on the ribs would be terrible feeling for a driver, right? Like even Nicholas and Norman, there's a great discussion of them. And Nicholas was talking about how they were, someone was talking about lag and he was like, no, nah, I don't, I, I'm the opposite. He said, when I got to my longer clubs, I felt like I had to release those the earliest. Because remember that that club has to have more force applied on it 
to square up at impact because not it's not so much that it's more it's just that it's earlier and the whole time so i can hit a nine iron and be like this but if i try and do that with a driver i'm going to end up having to go like this so the problem with knowing that the driver is going to take the most time to get back to impact if i have some feeling where i'm narrowing my hand pass coming down i'm never going to be able to get that thing where i needed to so if i'm here and it's too narrow i'm going to have to extend or find a way to to decelerate to get it going out so nicholas said that you know he felt from the top that he was just trying to release it and cast it and and casting is not a good word but this is really funny so I don't remember what age I was, but I went to a camp and we went fly fishing. And at that time, cause I'm a little guy, but even then I was like a tiny kid and I hit it straight, but I didn't hit it very far. And they just, it, you know, but I worked on like this cause it looked like all the swings of guys who swung really fast. It looked like they did this. Now, remember they're doing this as it's looking like that. It's just happening so quick. So if I'm at the top and I'm here, Within a hundredth of a second, of course, it's still going to look like I'm holding it, but I'm actually trying to get rid of it as fast as I can because I need it to speed up, right? So I go fly fishing and I'm terror. I can't get the thing to go. And so the guy comes over and he teaches me. He says, you know, you got to cast it. So he gets me. And that's like, I'm like, that's a bad word. So he, he gets me loading slightly and then releasing and I'm, I'm trying to hit it further by having all this lag, but all I'm good at doing is hitting it really low and straight. And then they're like, well, you know, it might be a talent issue too, which is great. Uh, the sports psychologist came next, which was even worse. But <laughs> this, this is happening. And then I start doing it, and I'm throwing this thing across the river. So I'm fascinated now, right? I get home. I get on the driving range. And I try and do the same thing. I try to kind of load my wrist and cast them on the way down. And I had never, ever hit a golf ball like that in my life. Mm. Um, and that became, you know, uh, that, that became one of the first reasons that I started to challenge everything I've been told. You know, if you want to hit it further, turn your body faster. Well, if I turn my body really fast, that club's not really going that fast. Okay. You know, like... If you want power, you got to jump. I don't even have a vertical to begin with. So, you know, these are, when those guys are jumping, those are reactive forces. They're reacting to the intent of something else. It's not like, for example, Justin Thomas, he jumps with his driver, right? Okay, why doesn't he jump with the six iron that he hits 206? Is because the opposing forces and the intent of what he's trying to do is not the same. So if he wanted to hit his six, Six iron going 206 is a pretty far six iron. Okay. So, yeah. Why did he get slower this year and then got faster lately? He got slower because he started to get here and came down. He knew that he couldn't go. And now that he has the center of mass in a better place coming down, he can really go. So, I'm, I'm not saying that we're casting it this way, but I'm trying to cast it or release it, whatever you want to call it is from here, I'm trying to do that under the plane. And that unfortunately became like the word shallow. So a lot of people go to the top and they try to shallow it. But when the hands go out that much, the club shallows. But when I put a force that way, 
it also opens the face. So yeah, Victor Hovland has to be like this when he goes out like that because it's going to open the face. You see what I'm saying? So it's yeah. Oh, yeah. the idea that I'm going from here, I'm going this way. I'm, it's not casting this way. It's, yeah, you're going straight down. But yeah, about that was that, you know, though Nicholas and Rory and Greg Norman, who are, you know, some of the greatest long iron and drivers who have ever lived, that release profile isn't fantastic for short iron. So just think about how many balls that Greg Norman spun off the green or how Jack had issues with wedge play. So when you, you know, when you watch Jordan Spieth and Sergio come into a wedge shot and they, you know, they take pretty sizable divots to keep that flight down, not saying that you have to take a sizable divot to flight it, but if you do the same thing with a driver, it's going to get six feet off the ground. And so I think for you, between now and when you do that, when you go to practice, just trying to get the ball up in the air with everything is going to really help you because there's no need at this point to, there doesn't need to be a change to swing mechanics or anything like that, but there just, there just needs to be you working on what's the easiest shot for you hitting it low. Okay. So what would be really good for me hitting it high. Right. And within a year, you probably have a mid trajectory. Your driver will get better. Um, your short irons probably wouldn't improve that much. They're probably already pretty good, but I'd say from mid iron to driver it would get better and really, that's the difference between a club champion and a world-class player is 175 to 275. Like, a, a lot of great club champions on and around the green, they could have short game contests with tour players. But when they get to 200 and they're hitting hybrid and a tour player is hitting eight iron, that's just a different game, right? Yeah. Oh, completely. Sean, I think it's so refreshing. I know we're kind of wrapping up here. Sure. I think it's so refreshing to hear you talk about and you're one of the best to ever teach the game, but to talk about the hands and the arms, the way you do, and to create a product with David, the pro center, that is, is resonating with the greatest players in the world. And there's a million devices out there. If it resonates with the great players in the world, it can resonate with the average golfers that are listening to the show today. And because every YouTube video and every Instagram video is about, you know, shallowing and twisting. And it's like, you know, like you said, there's trends, some but a lot of ways to teach the golf swing, but that looks like it hurts. But but, but the thing is, and it's difficult. True, so I just want to say thank you because but true, it's true so rotation, But true rotation happens from opposing forces. So a couple forces. So when I get in my backswing, my, my weight at the top is in the front of my foot and it's in the heel of my back foot. Now, as I start down, it goes from the middle of my foot to my toe and goes from my toe to my heel. So if, if I want... I don't know if you can see that, but if I want to rotate this golf club, if I push on this side and pull on this side, I get rotation. So rotation is by no means getting, getting, getting open. If, if you look at the guys like Cameron champ, their counter rotation phase is unbelievable. So as the lower body is starting to clear, the upper body is still pointed back that way. Right. Keep those. It's closed. The most, the, sh the shoulders are trying to stay totally. Partially that is yeah. the case is because, if my arms come in, I will spin. So when you look at a, free, a figure skater, when they bring their arms in, they do that to rotate faster. Remember, I'm not trying to rotate faster through impact with my body. 
I'm trying to decelerate faster so I can transfer speed out to my arms. That's all I'm doing. The reason I do that and look here and Cameron looks here is because uh, my left foot's pronated. So my, my foot's in like this, my hips turn 36 degrees. His are around 70. He's, he's a flexible guy. <laughs> he's free. So the thing is, you know, people will say Cameron's hips are so fast, but I've had 12 year olds who have faster hips than Cameron who only hit their seven iron 110 yards. Here's, here's what I'll tell you. You think anybody that Nolan Ryan struck out ever went back to the dugout and said to the manager, man, that guy's legs are unbelievable. No, they said, this guy has a cannon, right? That's I'm not it. saying the, I'm not saying touching the ground to have friction is important. I'm not saying the legs don't contract to create power. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying at the end of the day, when Tiger Woods would talk about a player, he would say that guy's got great hands. That's it. That's all he'd ever say. That's how I've always described my older brother, Joe, played in the Canadian tour. But what makes Joe so good? Not comparing him to Tiger, but just elite players. He's got amazing hands that he can rely on and he's got them trained. And it's, it's yeah. Yeah. It's so, funny too, because I feel like someone like me, like a seven handicap, Serm told me I had great hands. I still don't even know what that means. I even tell people that around the greens, great hands. And I like still don't really know what that means. Yeah, the, the hands are, look, the hands, the, the eyes and the hands are the first things human beings live with. So, so much, so much of the brain's memory and power has to do with our ability to touch and see. And, you know, if, if, if you, I've, I've done some like uh, clinics with, uh, you know, with vets. Um, who have lost limbs and I've seen guys who have no legs hit the ball really great distances right or one leg hit the ball really great distances um, but the guys who have lost one arm or two they can't play very well so if I cut if if I cut Dustin Johnson's feet off and he learns to balance on his ankles he's still going to hit a golf ball really good if I cut his hands off he ain't even playing so I think that ends the debate to me, right. and the most the most simple way is that, you know, that to me that that ends the debate in the most simple way is that I cannot play golf without using my hands. But I've seen a lot of adaptive players hit beautiful shots who are paralyzed, who are just belted into the seat, and so obviously the belt in the seat gives them the ability to create energy against something but they hit the ball so well and they haven't been able to use their legs for 10 years. Right. So I'm not saying it's not, it doesn't have some importance, but I think if you're trying to find the distinctions and just, if you're them. teaching, if you're teaching soccer players and you're talking about how their hands are moving, you're unless they're a goaltender, you're probably in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sean, I know we went over time. It's always a pleasure having you good. on. Enjoy, uh, Sean enjoy Foley. Scotland. Yeah. Thank you. I should talk to you offline at some point before i come hack if there's any place i should go um that i'm not already planning but prosendergolf.com that's s-e-n-d-r um sean fully performance on instagram but it's always a pleasure to me the main takeaway here other than the stuff we talked about at the beginning just in regards to amateurs getting better when it comes to their swing is just stop trying things to try things get a coach have a plan understand what you do and try and find the thing that you can do easy and do it aggressively. But the pro center can certainly be a tool to help. And, and just lastly, just recognize too, you know, that, that 
there's been a lot of studies that have shown that longstanding success comes from delayed gratification, right? And the problem is now is everything is so instant and there's so much stimuli. And, you know, that I get a guy who comes to me, he's a surgeon and he's had a lesson. He comes back, he goes, you know, I thought I'd see more, you know, improvement. And I said to him, I said, you took your first biology class. How old were you? He said, 18. And I said, so the first time you did a legal surgery on someone's knee, how old were you? And he said, 32. And I said, so you took 14 years to do a surgery and you expected in a week to improve something that's been bad for 14 years. I mean, let's just be. And, and when I said that, he was like, I said, so yeah. look, if, if, if you, I have a way I want to do it. And if you want to stick to it, that's great. Um, but if, if, if you're trying to find the fast route to being way better at this, then I'm just not your guy. And, and that's it. It's the building that I love. Right. It's the, the challenge that I love. Like a couple of times when my players really get, accomplished i'm in no man's land up here i love being in the swamp with michael kim where he thinks that it's it's over and there's nothing he can do to improve and then watching him finish in the top 10 five times this year has just been that's that, that's the coolest yeah. thing it almost it almost gets like less enjoyable the better they get i just love being i love being in the dirty and i love being in the ugly zone because we're both going to learn so much about ourselves that are going to benefit us as men for the rest of our life well, passionate about the mundane. That's going to be it. That's going to stick with us. Sean, it's yeah, absolutely, it. an absolute pleasure to see you and come on again. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, guys. Enjoy, enjoy, the, enjoy the Dunhill. Thank you. I will.